I think it, it, it kind of diminishes what vocalists are doing. And it also sets them apart for no reason. Like vocalists are improvising in the same way that trumpet players are or anybody else. And so it's just like, oh, you're doing this cute thing. You're scatting. It's like, no, I'm actually doing the very same thing that everyone else is doing. So that's what my beef is with scat, not the like unfortunate other meaning, actually. <laughs> Welcome to Season 3 of Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. New for this series is the music of composer and sound designer Nick Cold. I'm honored to welcome Renee Yoxon as my first guest of Season 3. They are a trans non-binary singer, songwriter, jazz musician, and trans voice teacher. In this episode, Renee shares some beautiful and inspiring performances from their albums, as well as stories from life as a disabled person and how their disability and chronic pain has guided the direction of their career. We talk about their musical development and their experiences, both bad and good, as they navigated their musical education. Renee explains the kind of work they do with trans vocal exploration, and we dive into all kinds of topics in the usual tangential style of the series. You'll find a link to both the video and podcast, along with the transcript, in the description. Hi, Renee Yoxon. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I heard you once live. It was a very memorable concert. It was a CD release party with Mark Ferguson, who is a wonderful jazz pianist and trombone player who's a previous guest of the series. And I, it's very memorable uh, hearing your voice. And they were all original songs from what I remember. Right. That would have been 10 years ago, like at the yeah. fourth stage. Yeah. So when I was looking around for guests, I remembered um, I remembered you and I thought, oh, yeah, there's Renee. I wonder what they're up to. <laughs> and I had no idea you had this super interesting journey with trans voice alteration. So we're going to go into that a lot. That's like your business now and it's mm -hmm. one, your passion. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to go back to your life as a jazz singer and composer because it's, it's an interesting journey. I think you're the <laughs> third singer I've had on this series who has a science degree. The third? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> there are many of us, I guess. Yeah, Megan Jerome and Diane Nalini and now yourself. Right. So <laughs> physics, why did you uh, pursue physics? You know, when I was in high school, I kind of believed that that was my only option. I know that sounds funny, but to me, it was like, you go into science to get a job. I don't know where I got that belief. But I also really enjoyed science. And and when I originally like applied to university, I got into Carleton for neuroscience. And I spent one semester there and immediately fell in love with my physics professors and physics classes. So within one semester, I had transferred into the program. Mm-hmm. And I think your scientific mind helps you explain concepts very clearly. I think it definitely gives me a leg up. Yes, I really mm -hmm. like being uh, logical. <laughs> yeah. But when you were a kid, you were playing sax in the school band and you were doing musical theater. And then you went to jazz works. Yes. Yeah, I went to jazz works when I was 15. This was before I like really had an interest in jazz. I was just playing the saxophone in high school. And I think it was my father who was like, oh, I heard about this jazz camp. Do you want to go? And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. And I had the most transformative time. You know, when you're a kid and something like blows your mind to pieces. And I just remember the year after that, I, I think I there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't think about going back to jazz camp. And so by the time I got back there the following year, it was like I never left because it was on my mind the whole year. <laughs> And it's short, right? It's just a long weekend. Yeah, yeah. It's only like four or five days. It was really, really impactful. I went to Jazz Works. And oh, where yeah? I met, yeah? That's where I met Roddy Elias. We've been friends since then. And he Small was also world. 
a guest on this series. <laughs> Not that I pursue jazz, but I've always loved jazz so much. And um, anyway, I so let's go back to teenage Renee. And you, <laughs> you came from a pretty small community outside Ottawa. Well, I mean, Orleans. Like, I think oh, now okay. it's considered part of Ottawa. So okay. it's like part of the mega city. But I always, yeah, consider myself just from Ottawa. I was just curious because I got a reference to the fact that you were in this free uh, improv ensemble as a teenager but in a small community, which I thought was interesting. I used to drive from Orleans to Almont like okay. once a week wow, to, to hang with these old guys <laughs> and improvise. Actually, my dad used to drive me out there because he like was a car guy and he had a Mustang. And so he would just like take the opportunity to like drive really far and really fast. And I would get to go play improvising music. So that was okay. really cool. But it was a really long drive to go for that kind of activity. Just like an hour and a half, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it was like, like at least, uh, yeah, 80 minutes or something like that. And what was that like, that experience of just being in the moment and making stuff up? I mean, I can't, like, it's so long ago now. I can't remember what drew me to that. But I think, I, you know, those people that were out there, like Sitsi Pramsma, he's the, the man, he's a baritone saxophone player who used to host this group. Mm-hmm. They were just like cool weird artistic old dudes and I was a teenager like I couldn't believe that they even wanted me to be there but of course in retrospect like I'm sure they were also energized by my presence and we just had like a really good weird time together and mm-hmm. you know we, I used to go to parties at, at his house also afterwards like we became friends and that intergenerational friendship it's not something that everybody has access to and at the time like as a teenager it was yeah really special for me. It struck me when I left university and started working in the music profession that you're suddenly this must be true for other jobs too but maybe more in music you're thrust in with so many generations Mm -hmm. of colleagues and it's such a different feeling than just being a student and mostly being with your same your peers yeah yeah it was like that for me from the get-go like I you know I didn't go to jazz school first like I Mm -hmm. had a little jazz career before going to university for jazz so like I definitely got the experience of many intergenerational friendships. I'm sure that the younger people on the end of that spectrum would re- <laughs> would not appreciate being referred to as an intergenerational friendship. But anyway, you know what I mean? Like yeah. we're kind of all over the spectrum of, of places in life. And it's really, really cool. Like now that I think about it, that I got to have that. Mm-hmm. So I know you're willing to share uh, generously some of your four recorded albums. And um, you recorded some standards at mm-hmm. the beginning. and. Yes. Uh, I wanted to mention Willow Weep for me because I just love your rendition of that. Oh, thank you. Does that song have a certain meaning for you in terms of the the composer being a woman or anything? Wow, these are some deep cuts, <laughs> Leah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I'm trying to think back to like how we even chose the songs on that because that record like wasn't intended to be a record. Like way it started was Renee Jolie just asked me to come over and jam, mm. and I was of course again young and delighted to be invited to do these things. And after we played a few songs together, we were both like, well, if we just played a few more and then a few more, we'd have an album. And so it wasn't there wasn't like a ton of intention behind the selection process when it came to choosing the tunes. Willow Weep for me was probably a tune where he was like, do you know Willow Weep for me? And I was like, yeah, I do. And then we played it and we were like, wow, this sounds great. You know what I mean? It was as simple as that when it came to choosing repertoire for that yeah. record. It's. When you said deep cuts just now, do you mean you want me to cut that out? Or? No, no, not at all. I mean, it's just like you seem to know like a lot of very <laughs> small facts from my life that uh, I've never been asked about before. So I think that's super cool. Well, I, you know, when I heard that song, uh, Your Beautiful Rendition, I was thinking, 
like I associated it with Billie Holiday and like different famous singers. And then I Googled it and it came up Nina Simone and I thought she didn't write that. And then like, it's funny how things get ascribed to people. So actually the woman's name was Anne Rennell, mm. born Rosenblatt. And she was friends with George Gershwin who said, your name's too Jewish, take my advice, change it. Yeah, he, he was originally Gershwitz anyway. Mm. Um, but she was very much a trailblazer in terms of being a woman um, a successful composer and in that world. And then I was looking her up more, like I go down these rabbit holes, and her, her life partner was 30 years younger than you, her. And they, I thought, you wow. go girl, like that's great. <laughs> Talk about intergenerational. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that song is like one of the first on the record too. It's really early in the, in the, yeah. in the track list. And Renee did such an amazing rendition of it. I had very little to do with the with with the accompaniment piece. Like he pretty much produced, arranged all of the tunes on that record. Um, you know, he's so playful when it comes to arranging. So that's what created such a beautiful rendition, I think. He's a big hand in that. is green along the stream that runs to sea listen to my plea listen willow and weep for me gone my lover's dream lovely summer dream me here to weave my tears into a stream sad as I can be hear me willow and weep for me whisper to the wind and say that love is sin making a moan murmur to the night to hide her starry light so none will find me sighing and crying all alone weeping willow tree weeping sympathy down along the ground and cover me when the shadows fall bend a willow and weep for me
starry light so none will find me sighing and crying all alone oh weeping willow tree weep in sympathy bend your branches down along the ground and cut me when the shadows fall Oh, willow and weep for me Willow weep, willow weep for me Hi, just a quick break from the episode. I'm an independent podcaster who does all the many jobs required to produce the series, and there are a lot of costs I bear as well. Please consider either buying me a virtual coffee as a tip or becoming a monthly supporter starting at $3 Canadian, which is close to $2 US or 2 euros, and getting access to unique perks. The link is in the description. Now back to the episode. And you play piano, you learned some piano as a kid, but you don't play on, you haven't played on your recordings. I think I play on Beautiful Alchemy. Okay. A f- in a few little places. Yeah. But like for the majority of my records, no, I'm not playing on them. I really only like dug into piano in the last five years or so. So, mm. you know, now I accompany myself a lot, but uh, it's still like a more practical skill more than it is like a musical skill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a photo of you playing ukulele. Do you play that actively or just a little bit? Um, a little bit. Yeah, I, I played it again on Beautiful Alchemy. There's a few songs. I use it more as a writing tool. So mm-hmm. I find that like, when I change the instrument I'm writing on, I usually get like more different chord progressions or interesting ideas. So I, I bought a ukulele just for fun a couple of years ago. And wrote a few songs. Specifically, it was while I was at McGill, somebody was asking for like, a recording student was asking for someone to come in and record something. And it's always easier for them when you can accompany yourself. So I brought my little ukulele and and I learned. And uh, yeah, so there's definitely some, maybe there's some ukulele parts on Beautiful Alchemy. But recently, actually, someone uh, commissioned me to write a song for their engagement for like a proposal. So I wrote a little custom song on ukulele. So I literally have been using it like quite a lot recently, actually. Yeah. Mm People should commission you for all their Kickstarter campaigns. They <laughs> Good idea. I wanted to ask, uh, yeah, so it, on Beautiful Alchemy, I think my favorite song is Terrible Alchemy. It's just it's so touching. That was written poignant. on the ukulele. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, so you played it, yeah. So are these songs we can share? We've already talked about Willow Weep for me. Yes, absolutely. I think on the record, on the recorded version, what you're hearing is not ukulele. It's it's guitar. So Matt Schultz is the okay. guitarist. So he uh, graciously adapted that the ukulele part, which is very easy to play on the ukulele and very challenging on the guitar. Okay. <laughs> but that's what you'll be hearing on this piece. 
And the film, I, I, I watched the film, Beautiful Alchemy. What was the process? Were you approached by the filmmaker to make this? Yes. Yeah, so Tegan Lance is the filmmaker, and she was doing um, a BFA in film at Concordia. And she's a trans woman, and she had been looking for a trans subject for her like thesis film, essentially. And it was a little bit challenging for her to find someone who was like, out enough that they would be okay with having their likeness sort of in a film. And so somebody in the community uh, recommended me and we met and right away we hit it off. And actually the recording that we did, like both in the film and for the record, was for a recording student's master's project. So there was like two master's projects happening and a recording. And when I met Tegan, I was like, this is perfect. You know, you can just come tomorrow. We're going to have a midnight recording tomorrow night. So she met me and then the next day showed up at midnight at Miguel with, with her camera and was like ready to film. So we had literally just met when uh, when you see us together in the film. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's a quite an accomplishment. Yeah, she's amazing. I love her so much. It was her proposal, actually, that I wrote the ukulele song for. Her, her oh, okay. now fiance, Sarah, proposed yeah. to her. So yeah. Nice. <laughs>
tales of villains Black as the crow And a hero pure of heart With sword held high To vanquish such a foe My life outside the And I wanted to also ask you, you had a pretty unusual album. Oh, oh yeah. No, before we leave, um, let's call it a day, your 2010 album. Mm -hmm. Everything available on Bandcamp. Yes. Um, you recorded Par ce beau jour de printemps by Rodgers and Hammerstein. It wasn't a French song originally. Like, did you translate it or? No, you know, I was obsessed with Blossom Deary growing okay. up. Like, do you know that picture of her? On, do you know her, her records at all? There's like, a, her first what? record, she has like, hair a lot like yours actually and like these big kind of Woody Allen mid-century glasses and she's looking so beautiful and I was like I want to be that you're so cool and beatniky anyway she did a lot of French versions of jazz standards and this was one of them so I got the lyrics from her he has okay. a really little voice just like this <laughs> that's if you so she has a very distinct singing voice um on uh Sao Paulo you did this beautiful no no lyrics song and in another interview, I heard you talk about how you love uh, doing wordless um, improv and how you hate the word scat. <laughs> <laughs> it's an unfortunate word. Let's just let's be honest. I think I knew that meaning of it way before I knew the other. Meaning, actually, <laughs> well, 
I think it, it, it kind of diminishes what vocalists are doing, and it also mm-hmm. sets them apart for no reason. Like, vocalists mm-hmm. are improvising in the same way that trumpet players are or anybody else, and so it's just like, oh, you're doing this cute thing, you're scatting. It's like, no, I'm actually doing the very same thing that everyone else is doing. So that's what my beef is with scat, not the, like, unfortunate other meaning, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you had also mentioned um, in another interview, Jay Clayton was... Um, an influence that way had you had contact with her was it lessons or just listening or being aware of jay clayton yeah i mean we briefly met and i mean extremely briefly we had a phone call when i was living in new york in 2010 or 11 must have been must have been 11 um but i think i had called her because i was looking to get a lesson with Another like famous jazz singer from New York who uh, is still alive and working today, uh, Sheila Jordan. It was Sheila Jordan. Oh, okay. So Sheila Jordan and Jay Clayton were living together, and I knew Sheila Jordan from, you know, her records and from people in in the Canada who know her very well. I think Ori Dagan is like good friends with Sheila Jordan. He's a, a jazz singer from Toronto. Um, so I was in New York and I was trying to get a lesson with Sheila, and someone gave me their phone number. I don't like New York is so wild for this. So I called, and it was Jay Clayton on the phone. <laughs> And uh, that was the only interaction we had. But of course, I love like Jay Clayton's music. And and yeah, I learned a lot about improvising from the people I met while living in New York. Actually, I did a lot of of wordless improvising. So you got this special grant. I think you were one of the first recipients in order to go study in New York. Uh, So this is funny. Yeah, what I got was an award from the fourth stage like from the NAC Mm -hmm. I don't remember what it was it was like a it was astral media that's it yeah yeah it was an astral media award it wasn't for anything I could have done anything with the money but like I just the stars kind of aligned I had this money from astral media I had like a little tax return and I saw that someone I knew in New York was like renting their room in their apartment in Brooklyn for like $500 a month and I was like hmm this is all just coming together I have this money this opportunity has happened so I went down there for 10 weeks and learned a lot about a lot of different things, not just music. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what were the personal things or just? Yeah, well, at the time I was like uh, learning how disabled I was. Like I have chronic pain. I've had chronic pain since I was 20 years old and I'm 34 now. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time I really hadn't like accepted that that was a reality in my life. And it wasn't until I went to live in a third story walk up oh. in New York and didn't have my car that I was like, Oh, I actually get like one trip a day and that's all I can manage physically. But the upside of this was that I practiced for like eight hours a day for 10 weeks. <laughs> like I left my house just to get groceries or go to music lessons or like see a show sometimes. And the rest of the time I was practicing because I just I literally couldn't leave the house. So all I did was practice. So, Renee, what does that look like? A jazz? I just don't understand what you'd be like. I'm a violinist. Like we just have a <laughs> technique. I'm just curious. What would you be practicing? Well, yeah, so I practiced um, technique. Like I took a, a classical singing lesson with Karen Nemoriella, who has a st- teaching studio in both New York and Paris. And I, you know, it was amazing. She lives in like the 25th floor overlooking Central Park. So like I got to study with her a couple of times. And yeah, so a lot of like technique stuff. And then um, a lot of ear training. I remember specifically, I learned the chromatic scale really, really well. Like I was able to sing it very specifically like up and down on a ton of different um, syllables which were important for improvising. Uh, what else did I do? I practiced a lot of songs. Um, but yeah, it was mostly like like technique, like singing technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And you also had coachings um, uh, with, uh, oh yeah, Peter Eldridge. And yeah, did, well, it was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I heard you, this is like an old interview, you probably don't remember it, but he had, you said something about he had um, coached you on your speaking voice, which I found interesting in terms of what you're doing now. Yeah, he wasn't the only one who coached me on my speaking voice. <laughs> I've had a bunch of teachers um, who notice quite rightly that I have a very like heavy, th- sort of thick speaking voice. I'm kind of taking it off right now a little bit because I'm in a professional setting. But with my friends, I'm like, rah, rah, rah. like I have a, a really like clowny, uh, yeah, um, a very thick speaking voice is how the only way I know how to describe it. So that can cause like the loss of the voice if it's not well managed over time and when I sing now, I definitely use a technique that's healthier, so I'm not, like, actively causing laryngitis for myself all the time. But, yeah, multiple teachers have pointed this out to me. And I have, and the, for good reasons. Like, I have lost my voice before, and I used to chronically lose my voice until I learned how to, how to manage that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were singing in a rock band, like, when you were young, and that was... You do your research. Well, I, I'm so impressed. <laughs> this is so impressive. Yes, I did. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I sang in a band called Gorgeous George, which was a rapper, a rapper, pardon me, a um, a boxer who uh, was very feminine, like he used to put mm-hmm. makeup on in the ring and wear like a little blonde wig or something. And I don't know why we chose that. In retrospect, it's like very trans, very on brand for me now. But at the time, that wasn't like on my mind so much. Um, but yeah, we used to get together and play pretty regularly at the Mercury Lounge in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. We had like a regular Sunday there. And but you were already doing jazz, so were you worried about your voice? Like, did you feel that it was a strain? No, I mean, like contemporary. Um, co- what is it called? Contemporary music kind of shares a lot of the same technique. So, you know, I was in a rock band, yes, but I was singing with my jazz technique. Like, I okay. wasn't really changing that too much. Maybe sometimes, and also just rock band living was a little bit harder on the voice <laughs> yeah. than the actual singing. Like, we stayed up really late. We would drink, probably smoke. I don't know. Things that, habits were that were bad for the voice. But I'm always, I'm pretty careful about that stuff. I, I take good care of my voice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder what it's like for singers that this instrument is so delicate like it's your body you know I mean Mm -hmm. I can feel terrible and still play violin which might feel bad but I can do it you know um what's that like and you know in terms of just going through a career worrying about that you're touring you know in the past yeah that's a really good question I I like to say that the voice is not as delicate as people think it is (laughs) because I have a lot of students like especially now in my trans voice practice which we'll talk about later who are not singers and like don't have any musical background and are of the belief that the voice is super delicate and if they do it wrong they're gonna hurt their voice and I have to be like listen like if you can run and have sore legs and then your legs recover like you can also sing and have a sore voice and then your voice recovers like it's a muscle like anything else so obviously if it's starting to hurt you shouldn't keep going just like you wouldn't keep running if your legs were hurting you know Um, And you have to take care of it, just like you have to take care of anything else. But I think some people believe the voice is is so delicate that they are too scared to, like, push it in the way that you would push yourself in other ways if you were doing a sport or whatever. So, you know, it's delicate, but you you get the warning signs, especially if you've been singing for many years. You start to learn, like, when you're reaching your limits uh, and you train so that you can extend your limits. Like, when I was really singing all the time, like, making records and doing gigs, I could sing for eight hours a day, and it, like, did not bother me in the slightest. Now that's not the case, <laughs> but I'm, it's not required of me now. But then I was, like, training like an athlete to be able to maintain that kind of, that kind of endurance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's so much to talk about, and I want to circle back to some other things earlier on, but let's get into your, your coaching and what you do now, which is so compelling. And I have to say, I, I watched a whole bunch of your TikTok videos. <laughs> Would we be able to share any of them as part of this? Yeah, absolutely. Whatever, Whichever one you want, I'm happy to share. Okay, that's cool. And some of the things you say are just gold. I think for anyone learning anything or even with anxiety, like one of your quotes was, what if I was sure this was easy to do? That's my favorite quote, Leah. <laughs> I love that. It just like f turns a switch in people's brains sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm a gender affirming voice teacher. And today I want to talk about pitch lowering. This is one of the most common questions I get in my comments section. How do I lower my pitch? How do I have a lower voice? I wanted to like clarify some myths around this. There is no direct analog for lowering pitch for masculinization and raising pitch for feminization because we have a lot more headroom generally uh, in higher notes than we do in lower notes. I would say most people sort of speak in about the like low to mid part of their range. So we can't go like super far down. Um, but we can move like one or two semitones, and I'm going to show you what that means in a second. Uh, and that will make a really huge difference. So the first thing to do is to figure out where you sort of sit range-wise already. And the way I like to do that is by counting to 10. So just in a normal way, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, 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 two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 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 So I kind of have like a this octave. So that's like pretty common as the feminine perceived octave. I'll talk more about that in a future video. But if I wanted to masculinize that, I could start by just lowering that whole counting by a semitone. So if I give myself a new note, one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 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 Right? Or I could start a semitone lower than that. One, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So I'm trying to keep the average sort of the same, but that's as low as I would like to go. I really don't want to go like lower than this, but we'll see in the next video that there is a lot more you can do with other characteristics other than pitch. So we'll see you there. We were just talking about TikTok and, mm -hmm. oh, another uh, quote of yours I loved is you said, grow the bounds of silliness in your life. <laughs> I love that too, because we're all as adults, too serious. Be sillier, makes for a happier life. Especially when you're trying new things, you have to be willing to not be successful at first or feel out of your comfort zone, right? There's a quote from Adventure Time, which is a cartoon that I really love. There's this little dog called Jake, and his quote is, dude, sucking at something is the first step towards being sort of good at something. <laughs> That's how I live my life. So you'd been teaching voice for many, many years as quite a young person, actually, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I started like around age 20. And then uh, t tell the story about how you got invited to do these kind of workshops. The trans voice workshops? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had been teaching for, as you say, like like at least 10 years. And what happens, it's kind of a long story. It's kind of a complicated journey. But basically, sure, I was in Ireland studying um, songwriting. And when we were there, we were asked to like do a lot of five-year planning. Like there's a lot of business stuff built into the, the music degree, which I really appreciated. Because it doesn't, I didn't get that at McGill during my jazz degree. Um, so I, you know, had to spend a lot of time critically thinking about like what I wanted out of my teaching practice, out of my music practice. And something I had f been feeling for a while was that I m appreciate more when I'm teaching students who 
share my axes of marginalization. So I have a better time when I'm teaching students with disabilities and students who are trans. And that's because we, we get along. There's like unspoken things that we just inherently understand. So I decided I wanted to focus my singing teaching practice towards those students. But those groups don't historically have a lot of disposable income to spend on singing lessons. So I created at that time the Right to Sing Award, which was like a little scholarship. Um, I raised about $1,000 and I was able to give like 10 free lessons to people of those communities. So I, I pitched it as like um, free lessons for disabled and or trans people, but actually everyone who received a scholarship was both. And that's because those groups have a lot of overlap in general. Um, so I was advertising the, the scholarship program. I was fundraising. I was searching for uh, people to apply. And because I did that, I, I think I, I purchased like an Instagram ad or something. And a group in Montreal called Project 10 saw the Instagram ad. And they reached out to me and said, hey, we saw your ad. We see you're teaching trans people. We just had a, a workshop at our organization um, on trans voice alteration or modification, but it was with an SLP, a speech language pathologist, who um, who was cisgender, so his, his gender aligned with the one he was assigned at birth. And they just, the way he was going about explaining trans voice alteration, like didn't align with the the value system of Project 10, which is a little bit like more open in terms of gender roles. Like I think I don't like this is I'm not trying to say anything bad about this particular SLP, but if you don't live in like the non-binary space where gender is exploded and everything is whatever you want it to be, you can have sort of regressive ideas about like you do this to be a woman and you do this mm. to be a man. So they didn't like that. And so they asked me, you know, you want somebody trans to come and teach this this material and would you do that? And I had never done that before. But I was like, yes, 100%. That sounds exactly like what I want to be doing. And I was immediately like really excited by it because I had never thought to do that. Like it had never occurred to me to teach this material. But as soon as I thought about how exploratory of a process trans voice alteration can be, I was totally into it from day one. So I did like a lot of learning, self-study. I put together a workshop, which looks very different from what my teaching looks like now, but that was the first one. And that was the first workshop. So I was, they called that one Trans Vocal Exploration. That was what they called it. And that's now the name of my, one of my e-courses that I have online. Um, and then they kept hiring me back to teach the workshop in French and in English. And I did it like maybe four times over a couple of years and got to hone that skill and then started teaching at other organizations online and in person. Mm -hmm. And how have you, you said it's very different than what you've arrived now. What things did you feel you had to change to make it better? Well, I think I was leaning more on, at the time I, I focused on like, what do people, how do people use their voice already? You know, that was the easiest way in I could see for young people, especially like the, the group Project 10 has a, a 25 and under mandate. So I was thinking specifically about like young teens and how to connect with them. So it was like, when you're happy, how does your voice sound? And when you're frightened, how does your voice sound? When you're tired, how does your... And those are still things that I use in my teaching, but it's not like the first thing that I'll go for mm -hmm. anymore. I think I'm a little more efficient at the process now than I was at the beginning. Yeah, I want to talk about, uh, you know, gender presentation and gender identity, because mm -hmm. for a lot of um, people, they don't really understand that. Mm -hmm. And probably I don't really as well. <laughs> That's okay. As much as I should. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, I mean, is your question like, what is the difference between those two things? Yeah, how do they intersect? 
Yeah, so that's why when I'm talking about my practice, I always say that I help people, trans people, create voices that align with their gender presentation because any gender can have any voice. Like, there, if you're a woman, you have a woman's voice. That, that's what I believe. If you're a man, you have a man's voice. And if you're non-binary, you have a non-binary voice. So it's, it would be strange for me to say, I'm going to help you create a voice that aligns with your gender because you already have a voice that aligns with your gender. However, your presentation is like how you present yourself to the world. So you might want to be really feminine, um, you know, and that might uh, express itself with lots of makeup or a particular kind of makeup or a particular kind of hairstyle or clothes or your voice, right? If you changed like if you wore overalls one day and then a wedding dress the next day, like your gender hasn't changed, right? It's just like how you're presenting yourself. Um, and the voice is the same. Like you could modify your voice, but it doesn't change your gender. It just modifies your presentation. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And would you say that a lot of people who aren't quite, um, let's say in certain contexts, they'll present differently, maybe mm -hmm. at work, they present a certain way that they would also consciously modify their voice if they so wish? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's this, I, I watch these two drag queens a lot on uh, on YouTube, mm -hmm. Trixie and Katya, and there's this really amazing quote that I love where Katya asks Trixie, do you ever masculinize your gait and or voice? And they're in full drag. And mm -hmm. Trixie is like, I'm doing it now. Like I'm masculinizing my voice now. You know, like people, people cis people modify their voice for any number of reasons um, to get to be like treated with differently or with more respect or to be taken more seriously. I know a lot of like cis women will kind of butch it up in a meeting mm -hmm. so that they get taken more seriously. Like it's, it's very common. And also if you're like even less uh, dire circumstances, like if you're talking with your lover, like if you're having pillow talk, if you're talking with your lover, you, you're not going to talk in the same way you would if you're talking to your best friend or to your boss. Like you might be talking in a sweeter voice. And that's normal. That's a normal part of the human experience is modifying mm -hmm. the voice. Yeah. So can you talk about the different ways we can modify our voice? I, I understand that vo like the vocal fold, like these terms, they're a little confusing. Yeah. I mean, there are um, a number of characteristics that we can work on sort of pseudo-independently, but they all kind of intersect and, and interconnect. One of them is pitch. That's the one everyone's most familiar with. So like I'm speaking with kind of a baseline pitch right now, and I could kind of bring my pitch up higher. This would be like a different type of voice. A lot of people speak in this place and that's totally fine and even I might speak up there if I was like really excited about something but right now it's kind of early in the morning so I'm in a lower part of my voice so that's pitch and then there's resonance and that is the relative brightness or darkness of a voice and that's controlled by the vocal tract so it's everything after the actual sound is produced at the level of the vocal folds so I can like not change my pitch at all all I'm changing right now is the resonance and actually I did this earlier when I did the Blossom Deary voice she has a little higher and brighter voice Right, so that's resonance, or I can make it darker by opening up the vocal tract. So this is like my pitch has not changed. I can also bring the pitch down, and you see you see what's happening here. Like these are interconnected characteristics, and then vocal fold mass is the third one, and it's a little bit more challenging because it's not like so strictly gendered in the way that we think of pitch and resonance. Like with pitch and resonance, high and bright is feminine, low and dark is masculine per, under pretty much all circumstances. Of course, there are people of all genders who are all over that spectrum, whereas vocal fold mass is a, is a measure of like thickness and thinness. And we tend to associate thinness with a more feminine voice. So I've kind of removed some of the thickness from my voice. And you can remove so much that you get breathiness where it's like you're not getting good vocal contact, vocal fold contact. 
or a really uh, thick voice is considered masculine because like vocal folds that have been exposed to testosterone tend to be thicker. However, if a, a person is like shouting, you know, it's perfectly feminine for someone to go, hey, with a very thick vocal fold mass that is also bright. So thickness and thinness is not like strictly all the time, one way feminine, one way masculine. It kind of depends on the circumstance. And <laughs> there's a lot going on up in here, sorry. And vocal fold mass is directly related to pitch. So a higher pitch will produce just mechanically a thinner vocal fold because of how they're being stretched. And a lower pitch will produce a thicker vocal fold. And volume. If you have a louder sound, you need more vocal fold mass to like to re resist the subglottic pressure. Whereas a softer sound, like a whisper, can be very thin. Mm -hmm. That was an extremely abridged version of all the information that I give people every day. <laughs> Do you find when you speak French that your voice changes just the way you produce it because it's a different language? A hundred percent. Every language does have. And that creates some interesting challenges for students who speak a language that like is darker naturally. Like I have, I mean, I've met many like trans women or trans feminine people, for instance, I'm thinking specifically of one who uh, was from Saguenay, one woman from Saguenay. And the French in Saguenay is like quite far back in the throat. It's very dark, la grande gueule. And so it was what was important for her was to like maintain her accent that was cultural, but then also feminize it. And this is always the balance we have to walk. Like how do we maintain the, the remnants of, of, a, of a cultural accent while also modifying the sound to be feminine or masculine as the case may be um, and different languages present different challenges and different regions of different languages present different challenges. Mm -hmm. So you have to really know your student individually. And how this um, vocal fry, how is that produced technically? Vocal fry, um, it's like when the vocal folds come together and then they kind of bubble open very slightly. It's sort of the same as if you were to put your lips together and do this, a little lip trill. So if you can imagine that happening here, uh, it's literally the same mechanism. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's something I just find irritating in some actors, you know, I've seen, and it's just, uh, I'm very aware of it, but of course, it's just a natural part of some people's voice. It's not necessarily something. As a podcaster, you might find it irritating because you listen to people's <laughs> voices all day. But what's interesting is culturally, sometimes we tend to find things that are coded as feminine, more quote unquote annoying. And sometimes we have to question, like, why do we find that thing annoying? Like vocal fry specifically in the last like 10 years or so, or even more than that, maybe 15 years, has become like extremely feminine coded mm. because of like Britney Spears and Kim Kardashian. It's like a very feminine thing to do. Mm -hmm. And but if you look back to like the early 2000s, it was up speak that people found really annoying and even then, this was coded culturally feminine. So like as time goes on, these things that are coded feminine, we find quote unquote annoying. So whenever I'm like finding something about the way someone's speaking annoying, I try to stop myself and go, hmm, what other things are happening here like in my brain that I'm not, like my biases are coming out, you know? So that's very interesting and really, really important point actually. Um, so you were talking about how you got going with your workshops, but in, the, um, I think it was May 2021 when your TikTok went viral. That mm -hmm. happened quite suddenly for you, right? Yes, very <laughs> suddenly. Very suddenly. I put out my first TikTok. And the reason I did that was I kind of just gave in. I figured, you know, I'm committing to being a trans voice teacher. Where are the young trans people? 
on TikTok. So I better get on TikTok. And the first TikTok I made went viral. Wow. It was very scary when that happened. <laughs> How viral did it go? It had 10,000 likes within like the first 24 hours. Wow. Um, <laughs> and like I think my account, I, I might be misquoting that. I think my account ended up with 10,000 followers within like a couple of days. And on TikTok, the numbers seem a little inflated and it's because you can grow an account much faster on TikTok than other things. So like 10,000 TikTok followers are like relatively equal to like 2,000 Instagram followers just because of the way that the the app is is created. So like I grew the account to over 100,000 in the last year, which is wild, <laughs> but that is much easier to do on TikTok. So I don't take like a, a ton of credit for like <laughs> for that. The algorithm helps a lot. But yeah, within one week, I had like booked out all of my private lessons. I I had to I had to change my whole business practice in a week. It was quite the week. And now you have one of your e-courses is to teach other teachers. And do they need to be um, voice teachers? Yeah. So you're talking about learn to teach trans voice alteration in five weeks, which I just yes. started the the third cohort of like a couple of days ago, and I market it towards people who have a singing practice so they don't need to be a teacher necessarily um but also slps take the course pretty regularly so a lot of them don't have necessarily a singing practice but yeah it's it's typically like voice professionals of any kind mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how are you you said it's the third cohort so you have some contact with them it's not all virtual it's not all pre-recorded correct so the last two cohorts were completely live actually so we would meet for four hours every week and i would lecture that was hard on the voice um doing four hours of lecturing this cohort i have pre-recorded most of the lectures and we're still meeting but just for one hour for like an office hour and instead i'm doing um voxer support so each teacher is like allowed to message me directly over an app called Voxer and then we just exchange voice memos and it's been an interesting change of pace because now I get to like know each teacher individually on like a one-on-one -on -one basis and they're all wonderful <laughs> they're all great people so it's wonderful why did you choose a voice message app for that just an experiment I just wanted to uh I didn't want to be emailing I have like pretty good work boundaries so I try not to be on my computer um all the time like I work like restricted hours, like nine to whatever, four or something. Um, but I wanted to be able to answer questions sort of on the go. So if I was out getting groceries or in, in the car, like I could answer them pretty quickly. We'll see. I might decide that it doesn't align with my values around boundaries, but I'm just trying it out this time. No, that's cool. I was wondering also about disability in terms of people who are visually impaired, that mm -hmm. that would be a good Twice. Totally. I mean, most people who are visually impaired and who use a phone would have a text-to-speech app anyway. So, like, even if we were texting, they would probably use their their text-to-speech. But, uh, yeah, it's nice. You could have both. Like, any app nowadays, you can do either text or audio. For me, it's a lot faster to record an audio reply than to craft, a, like, a text message. And better for my, my joints and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned it at the University of Limerick that they had when you did the songwriting masters that they had a businessy part to it and I have to say like I I went to uh, McGill for my undergraduate in music and then I did a master's in Indiana and yeah there was no if there were courses like that I wasn't aware of them mm -hmm. we had nothing beyond just the very basic old-fashioned courses and I had no clue 
you know, entering the profession of any options or, and now I think particularly people have to be able to be entrepreneurial in the music business. Absolutely. I think they always did, but now especially yeah. you have to know a little bit about marketing, you know, because it's part of how you tell your story. So what kind of things did you learn there from that aspect? Yeah, the way that, that courses work in Europe are a little bit different. Like you get like a certain number of course hours. So like some courses can be the whole semester, but some are like half semester courses. So we had a half semester course on grant writing where we had to like find a grant and write it, which was, I had never been asked to do, I mean, I had written grants before university, but I had never been asked in university to write a grant. But it was so lovely to like get a feedback on a grant that I wrote. And then the second course was on writing a business plan. So they would, they asked us to either write a business plan for one organization, if we had one, or which most musicians decided to do was write up what's called a three strand plan. So as a musician, you're likely going to be performing and teaching and some third thing. And so we were, we had to look at each strand of our business and then write a business plan for each strand. So each strand would be like slightly less involved than if we were doing one business plan for the whole organization. But that was wonderful. I got a chance to like be like, okay, if I was a performing artist and a teacher and a professional songwriter, like what would I have to do to reach my goals in five years for each of those things? Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And um, how did you find out about this program? <laughs> it's another kind of long story, Leia. Um, basically, I was in Banff in 2012 for the Jazz and Creative Music Program, which was awesome. It's like a three-week program. 2012 was a particularly good year, too. We had a lot of good friends. We got along really well. It's a very tight group. And I became friends with an Irish singer named Edel Mead, who is wonderful, and I love her. And we stayed in touch after Banff. And then uh, actually one like side quest story when we were in Banff together we were sitting down talking about like who our favorite singers were and she was like oh I love Mark Murphy and I said oh me too I saw him in New York last year when I was living there I saw him at Birdland and she goes I saw him at Birdland last year too and I said were you sitting like at the edge of the of the like the raised section like writing in a notebook and she goes yes I was and I said I was sitting right next to you we were like the only two single people in the club everyone else like had multiple people at their table so we were sat next to each other and I just remember seeing her writing in her notebook and thinking why didn't I bring a notebook I'm that's so smart and so I, I remembered her a year later when we met at BAMP so of course that like serendipity solidified our friendship forever and then years went by and we kind of followed each other around the world like she told me that she was going to San Francisco to study with Theo Blechman and I should come but I couldn't go that year so I went the following year so she was in San Francisco then I was in San Francisco and then she told me later that she was planning to go to this new program at the University of Limerick that had just been launched she was I think uh, offered a spot in the first year but she decided to defer to the second year because she wanted the program to like get underway a little bit before she went and did it and I said well I think I should apply for that That sounds pretty good actually like when I read the description it really aligned with everything that I had been missing at McGill like I wanted space to like learn about who my like what my voice was as a songwriter to spread my wings creatively and uh that was exactly what I got in Ireland and so it was really lovely to be there with her you know we got to spend a year together and yeah that was how I heard about that program I spoke recently with a uh, Dutch uh, jazz uh, guitarist and composer, Mark Van Fucht, and his 
partner is Inika Van Dorn, who will also appear in the series. Oh, cool. And they had gone to Banff early on in the 90s, I think. And they were. he was saying to me how it was different going there, coming from Europe, because they were in their program in Utrecht. It was all about your own voice and writing your own music as jazz artists. And then he went there and everyone was doing standards, <laughs> which they didn't know. So it was like they, he went, said it went back and studied up on all the standards. So when I went back to Banff two years later, I kind of knew that repertoire, which I found interesting. But you know, it really depends on the director because when I was there, um, Vijay Iyer was taking over from Dave, uh, I can't remember the name of the trumpet player. Um, Anyway, so, you know, the first director was really into standards. So for the first like week, we had a lot of standards, but then after Vijay took over, it was free jazz time and there wasn't very much standards at all. But I didn't, there wasn't like a ton of um, like your own composition. It was, I mean, there was, there was a lot of compositions, but it was really a lot about like the creative process behind composition, which was really Mm -hmm. cool. So it really, it really depends from director to director what your experience Mm -hmm. will be like. So you mentioned going to McGill. It's a very well-known jazz program. And uh, so you graduated from physics. And by that point you knew that you didn't want to do graduate work in physics. Correct. Yeah. I, you know, I think it was like the third year I knew I wanted to pursue music. Um, I met a young saxophone player in Ottawa who had gotten a music degree. And at that point, I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know that you could just. (laughs) That's so silly now that I say it out loud. But like, I didn't know that was an option. Like, I didn't come from a musical family or a creative family. It really never occurred to me that you could pursue music as a profession. And it's funny because a lot of my teachers after were like, what did you think we were doing? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I don't know. So I, I like got out of the honors program in my third year and went into a general and completed my physics degree with all music extracurriculars. Okay. So that was really good. And then after I graduated, I would like hit the ground running. I like just was performing and, you know, I, I had no connection to physics beyond like doing a little TA job. But I, yeah, it was not a question at the end of my physics degree. And because you were based in Ottawa, which is, I mean, we're a city of, I'm, I'm in Ottawa, a city of one million, but still, I'd say pretty small community for the performing arts. Would you say that you were able to, like, launch a lot of projects and do your own thing, maybe because it was a smaller scene? Absolutely. Ottawa is an amazing place to come up as a musician because there's tons of room for you if you want to grow. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting situation for me because... Uh, there aren't a lot of like young musicians who stay in Ottawa. At the time, it could be different now. But then people would just go to Toronto or Montreal like as soon as they could. But I had just finished my degree, so I was not in the mood to go study more. And I was like the hot young thing on the scene. You know, everybody kind of wanted to play with me. I, I really had no trouble like playing with some of the most <laughs> accomplished players in the city, which was like a, an incredible gift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have mentors at that time that really helped you um, develop as a, as like a, as a writer as well as a performer? Yes, Mark. I mean, Mark Ferguson okay. was an incredible mentor. Like first, you know what, how Mark and I met was that he heard the record that Renee Jolie and I made, and then it just invited me over to hang, and okay. that's how we started writing together. So I'm so grateful to Renee Jolie for like believing in me and making that record with me. Um, and then also for Mark for like seeing that potential. And I wasn't even much of a writer at that time. Like it's kind of wild that he took a gamble on me like that. (laughs) Yeah. I remember he, um, had approached me. Um, I think, you know, he sometimes plays with the National Arts Center Orchestra where Mm -hmm. I work and 
he said maybe I was at a gig, but I can't remember the context. But he's like, Renee Oxen, uh, really amazing talent, and could you please give some money for because I think you're crowdfunding the recording, which I did. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so. <laughs> So and much. actually, people can buy the sheet music. I think that's cool. The lead sheets are available. I still have some physical copies of that, too, like mm-hmm. in my little filing cabinet. If people want that, I got it. <laughs> oh, yeah. There was something, another TikTok you had where you talked about low stakes micro conversations mm-hmm. to practice your different vocal explorations. And as someone, I had suffered with a lot of social anxiety when I was younger, which is kind of ironic now that I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah. But come a long way (laughs) yeah but I can completely relate and also I love to study languages and when you're just a beginner in any language it's really nerve-wracking to say anything to anyone in public but I so I know exactly what you mean by those low stakes micro conversations can you give some examples for people yeah absolutely A, a low stakes micro conversation would be like when you go to the store and they ask you if you want a plastic or paper bag or how you're going to pay like you know in advance all you got to say is no bag please (laughs) or debit it's like four (laughs) words or when you're getting off the bus you can thank the bus driver or when you're ordering your coffee like you order it the same way every time all you got to say is iced coffee that's it please and so that's a really good way to practice but language as you say is an analogy that I use all the time in my teaching because I'm also a language learner I'm learning Spanish and I know that when your brain has to process, it can't also be processing other things. So something I do with my students a lot is we do what are called cognitive load games. And that forces the brain to like do a little processing while you're also thinking about maintaining your target voice. And this like you as a language learner, you know that as soon as someone asks you a simple question about your life, if you're trying to reply in the language you don't speak, like my Spanish teacher asked me like, what car do you drive? And I was like, no say. (laughs) I don't know what car I drive. I just like my brain just lost that information while it was processing Spanish. And this happens in the exact same way when you're trying to maintain a new speaking voice. Mm -hmm. I was reading the testimonials on your website from such a diverse range of students. And would you say most, you were saying at the beginning, most of your students were trans and disabled, but now that you're, um, you're selling your e-courses, it's not the same would you say that's still mostly the majority or? Well, I don't know about the disability status of the students yeah. anymore because I, I only like I only know that they come to me usually because they're trans. But also, I don't know about the gender status of the students. Like people can people who are cis also study with me. I've had like, you know, gay men, for example, in countries where it's not safe to sound gay. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about like modifying their voice to sound more masculine and more straight. Um, and then, of course, cis women who both want to sound more masculine in business or more feminine to be, you know, like there's just no limit to the people who look for this service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are you still actively writing songs? Well, I'm not I don't have my songwriting practice in the way that I did when I was making albums. But as I mentioned earlier, like I sometimes get commissioned to write songs for people and I will do that. Um, and I also have been working recently with a friend from the songwriting program in Limerick, Aoife Makatamni, who uh, her artist name is Pink Breath, and we love co-writing together. She's such a beautiful writer and singer, and so we've been meeting like every other week for a couple of hours. And I, I'm writing, but it feels more like a dramaturgical role, like a producer role, sort of like... I'm looking at the overarching connection between songs and we're trying to make a a story out of these songs. 
and really I'm just a foil. Like I'll say, hmm, I think it should be this way. And she'll go, no, I, I now decided that I like it the other way because I had to think about it, you know. So I, I really just love the songwriting process and the practice of it, but I don't, I'm not like committed to it like I was when I was in school or when I was actively making records. So many of your songs seem like heartbreak songs. Are, are they all autobiographical or is it some of it just narrative telling us characters' story? It's a mix of narrative and autobiogra- autobiography. Um, like, for example, Drinking Coffee is probably my most listened to song. And that one is not autobiographical because it's about a woman uh, with multiple children in a, <laughs> in a mountain town. So I go on trying to 
So sometimes I will write based on a prompt, um, but I, I do like autobiography. Like you haven't heard the songs from my master's degree yet, but I'm happy to share some of them with you. But I made like an album in that degree program. So it was like an album of nine songs and it was called The Bad Years. And it's um, an autobiographical look at the first five years of my chronic illness. So mm -hmm. songs that helped me to process like what it was like going through chronic pain at such a young age. And I hope to release that someday. I don't know when. It might never happen, but someday I hope so. Why haven't you released it? Because they were recorded by me in a little like studio. Like they're not well recorded. They're really just in the demo state right now. So there's kind of just a, hard, a high bar, like high activation energy needed to like get to the release process, which would okay. be like money and recording and all those things. And I just have other things to focus on. But I know that those songs will be there when if I ever want to release a record again. Yeah. It might be interesting to talk about is, you know, you're, you know, you're in your thirties and you grew up so that the um, evolution of the internet, but I know when you were first accessing music, it was through Casa music sharing, which I hadn't <laughs> even heard of. <laughs> oh no. Did I say that in another interview? You the, did. The FBI are going to come for me. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah. I so, mean, that was how I got into jazz was, was by, um, I mean, Kaza, what was special about Kaza was that what you would do is you would search, well, what I would do anyway, you'd search for like an artist that you knew. So let's say I was familiar with Ella Fitzgerald. And what you would do is you would see who had Ella Fitzgerald in their library, and then you could open the entire library of that person. So people would share their libraries on servers, and then you could just download whatever you wanted from other people's music libraries. So you can't, it's hard to imagine that now, right? Like now that we have Spotify, it's like uncurated. It's just anything. Like you can go and listen to anything on Spotify. But I would search for one jazz artist I knew and see that, uh, you know, Matt578 has all of Ella Fitzgerald. Well, what else does he have? And I could like go back in the folders, the folder tree, and see Matt578's jazz collection and download it all. All of wow. it. You can just have it all. Terrible in retrospect. But, you know, at the time, as a teenager with no moral compass I was able to like find music that I would never have been exposed to unless I had like a jazz loving uncle or whatever which I there's nobody in my family who listens to jazz so at like 16 17 I was listening to deep cuts from Betty Carter like <laughs> why it's luck that I got into that stuff mm -hmm. it's interesting you say everything's on Spotify I was reading a, a history of the blues last week and it was a uh... I can't remember the, the museum, but it was an archive in the in the Deep South and that they have this huge collection of 
thousands of like old 78s and wax cylinder recordings. Wow. And the, the, the curator was saying, no, everything is really not digitized. There's so much material still. That's, that's so true. I mean, yeah. I have records that I, I don't even have a record player, but I have a couple of records that I can never get rid of because I know they're not digitized. Like I have one particular uh, Carmen McRae album that I mm -hmm. love so much and I take it over to my friend's house and we listen to it together because I don't have a record player. But yeah, definitely lots of stuff is not on Spotify for sure. Yeah. And what would you say in terms of your growing up like musically and the changes? Like now you're this TikTok star. I mean, it's kind of funny. <laughs> star. <laughs> well, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, what's your question, sorry? So my question is like if you could reflect on the changes in the music industry and promotion and access and, and how you think it affects people coming up today. Well, yeah, my perspective is a little bit different from like your average musicians, I think, because I knew in my jazz degree that I wasn't going to be able to pursue a performing arts career, which is kind of sad. But I, like when I started at McGill, I was pretty disabled. Mm. Um, I had my rollator, which is like a four wheeled walker, like a mobility aid. And I would use my rollator every day. Um, I parked in the accessible parking like I really like could just barely get to school and get home and like manage my food and that was it. Um, and even in the setting of McGill, there were, I would say 70% of the like performances that I had to do in order to graduate were not accessible. So either they were like in a club, at, you, know, in, you know, in Montreal, like no venues are accessible. That's a big problem here. Um, or they were in one of the venues at McGill that was not accessible. And there was, it was just so hostile towards disabled people, the, the music industry. And there was like a prominent um, conductor who was disabled, a, a disabled woman, I forget her name now, Eleanor uh, Stubley, Eleanor Stubley, who was a professor. I could cry thinking about her because she passed away by suicide uh, while oh. she was at McGill. And one of the reasons was that she couldn't get accommodated in the way that she needed to live her life. We used to park next to each other. There was like two accessible parking spots. And she, she never learned my name. <laughs> One time she was like, are you supposed to park there? I was like, Eleanor, we've been parking next to each other for two years. <laughs> but when she died, they held her memorial in uh, the, the main theater. I can't remember what it's called, but it's not accessible. Like if you want to get on stage there, you have to like get into one of those big chair lifts and then five stage hands have to like turn it on. And then once you're on there, you can't use the bathroom. Oh, it was so upsetting to me that I wrote like a scathing letter to the dean and was like, first of all, how dare you hold her memorial in this place that she couldn't access independently? That's disrespectful to her memory. Second of all, you're emailing all the singers to like ask us if we can participate in the choir for her memorial and you're not including any accessibility information. Like that's why she killed herself. Ooh, I get so angry when I think about it. Mm -hmm. So this was like the start of my leaving the music industry. Uh, yeah, I just knew that th there was no way I was gonna be able to manage my chronic pain and also like do things that are necessary in order to succeed as a musician in the Canadian scene, which is like touring long distances, staying in places that are uncomfortable, staying up very late. It's just not built for me. I don't necessarily believe that now, my like thoughts and feelings about disability and 
the arts has changed somewhat, and that's in great part to um, a program called Sync Leadership, which is um, a program for disabled leaders in arts and culture. And they taught me that, like, you know, yes, the world is not created for us, but we can ask for what we need and receive it. And I'm working hard to do that now. Um, so, I, like, when I was about to graduate from McGill, I really thought I would never do music again. And then I found the program in Ireland and was like, okay, I'll do one more kick at the can because this program looks really fun. And luckily, it was a very accessible program. Like, I really had no problem getting my access needs met while I was there, um, unlike my time at McGill, which was really, really frustrating while I was mm. there. Mm -hmm. As a trans person, did you feel welcome in that community? Well, I mean... I was very, very early in my coming out process at the time, and I'm also not pursuing like a ton of um, medical transition. So like I, it's sort of funny when you're both trans and disabled, you sometimes feel like you have to choose like, what am I gonna get <laughs> met today? And so I had to talk to every teacher about my access needs and how I was gonna miss class sometimes. And so I just didn't also feel like, and by the way, my pronouns are they that, like it's just, okay, it's a lot. I'll just deal with one thing at a time. Some teachers, yes, I would. I felt comfortable talking to them about my pronouns or whatever else I needed. But there was a lot of homophobia, sexism, like present at McGill. This is not a secret. Like, I mean, it doesn't. It might be kind of shocking to hear it come out of my mouth, but like, everybody knows it. It might be different now because that was like a couple of years ago that I was there. But um, so transphobia just is homophobia and sexism in disguise, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, I didn't feel very comfortable being openly trans. You said at McGill, but at, at University of Limerick. A hundred percent, I felt comfortable. Okay. I mean, there were like little issues that did happen, but like, actually one really funny thing is when I applied, um, you know how normally you have to pick your honorific from like a drop-down box? It's like, you're either Miss or Mr. or Doctor, <laughs> or <laughs> that's like, those are your options. Well, so I picked whatever, Miss, and then when I went to the next slide, suddenly that drop-down box had changed to like a fill-in box. I was like, hmm, a programming error. Let me just take advantage of that. And so I just changed it to the non-binary honorific, which is Mix, M-X. And so because of that programming error, when I received my acceptance letter, it was addressed to Mix Yoxin, which was the first time that had ever happened to me ever. And it was really, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for people that don't understand the importance of pronouns and how that can change for people. Do you want to address that at all? I mean, I, th I think it's quite simple. Like if you use like she, her pronouns, just imagine if somebody would call you he and him and Dave, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just imagine someone calling you the wrong thing. It's that simple. Like it would just be incorrect. And nowadays, I, you know, so every trans person is different. Every person is different. But when somebody misgenders me, it's very easy for me to tell if they're doing so from an evil place or from a place of just error or from they just don't know. So I, I usually don't get upset when like people misgender me like on the street. It does like chip away at you after a while, obviously. But uh, you know, when someone does gender me correctly, I, it's an overwhelming sign of respect and love. And like, I know for certain people in my life, it's been very challenging to make that change. Like my parents, for instance, obviously they like raised me, so they've known me the longest, but you know, my mom is getting really good. We, I have t was telling you before this podcast, I went to a funeral on, on Monday and I was introduced to a lot of her cousins and she would say, this is my eldest. 
instead of my oldest daughter. Or she would say, this is my Renee, <laughs> which was so cute. And that's, that's, you know, a really big change for her because those are things that are hard to, the habits that are hard to change over time. But when you can do it, it, it shows that person that you love them and care for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you still teaching uh, voice privately occasionally or songwriting? I'm still teaching voice privately, only trans voice at the moment. Mm-hmm. I'm not teaching songwriting at the moment. It is sad. I do miss teaching songwriting, which is a really fun part of my practice. And I assume someday it'll happen again. But right now, we've got our eyes on the prize. We've got a goal. And your goal is to, to grow that part of your business. Yeah. And, and in terms of being a disability rights advocate, are you doing it outside like your your business or... You know, this is a funny, you you keep opening these huge topics, which I love, but I don't consider myself a disability rights advocate. And the reason I don't is that there are people whose profession is disability rights advocacy and who have the skills of advocacy, which I don't have. I mean, I used to work for a not-for-profit who did that work. So I've seen those people like who really know how to do that work. I think disabled people are in the unfortunate position of having to be disability rights advocates for themselves. And at McGill, certainly I had to do that a lot. I had to advocate for myself and I had to continuously be fighting for my right to be there. Um, And, you know, I mean, some people could say that I'm a disability rights advocate because I continue to advocate for like captions on things and, and other types of access and accommodations. But I think as a teacher, that's just what we should be doing for all of our students. We should be putting the onus of advocacy on ourselves so that our student doesn't have to go through what I went through at McGill. You know, just just the, the act of asking, like, what do you need so that I can give you the best teaching experience? You know, that's all it takes. It sounds like your experience was pretty negative at McGill. Did you consider not finishing your degree there? <laughs> you know, I didn't consider that at any point. I think you should have. <laughs> um, you know, I had all my uh, extracurricular credits covered from my physics degree so I really had it wasn't that much work actually to get the jazz degree like I went in and did the core courses and my motto during that time was put your head down and do the work and so I would go in I was a mature student also so I wasn't like I didn't have any of the emotional problems of being like a young person in university for the first time but I would go I'd go to class and then I'd get out of there and I had some great times too like I had wonderful times making music and making friends Um, I had some really amazing times with people uh, but I also did find a deli meat slicer in the accessible washroom. So, you know, <laughs> lots of things. <laughs> it was ups and downs at McGill. <laughs> but you've made Montreal your home for now, like after you returned from Ireland. Yeah, I actually never left this apartment. I sublet it for a year while I was in Ireland. So mm-hmm. I've been here for uh, nine years now and I love Montreal. I would never, I don't think I'm ever going to leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't have any problem with um, the politics of being an Anglophone and some of the new rules? No, I speak French and I have like half of my family is Francophone and and, uh, I, yeah, I'm not as connected to like the fully Anglophone community that may have issues with that. I do think it's very challenging for especially new immigrants who like want to access healthcare and the healthcare system is 100% in French and that is challenging. I have found that running a business in in, in Quebec has been very (laughs) difficult for that reason. Like there's all of the business services are 100% in French, which I can speak, but it is challenging sometimes. 
Um, but no, I, I really value the multiculturalism of, of this town specifically. I love that I can I have access to like a Spanish bookstore and I can speak French whenever I want. And there's, I mean, this neighborhood where I live in Park Extension has a hundred languages being spoken at any given time. My neighbor speaks Tagalog and my other neighbor speaks Lingala and there's tons of Greek and, you know, Swahili. So I love, I really love it here. Well, thanks so much uh, for sharing your your story with us today and uh, and your beautiful music as well. Thank you so much for having me, Leah. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Renee and feel like you got to know them both as a person and a musician. I so enjoy getting to know a wide diversity of musicians and their fascinating stories. Thanks for following this podcast. Check out the link in the description for how you can help me keep producing this series. Have a good week.